I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We have begun studying this uh, about a month ago, I guess. Uh, it's, uh, it's a couple weeks into September, uh, so maybe six weeks ago. And I hope that you have felt as challenged and blessed as we have, who have had the opportunity to present that to you. I have heard uh, people encouraged, and so that is... Um, uh, brings tremendous gratification. Just also want to remind you that we have kind of issued a challenge for the church. It's a, a friendly challenge, we think, uh, but we want to encourage people to read through the Book of Romans once per month uh, that we are in it. So that would have been you already read once once through in September. Uh, by now, you're almost through for October. We'll read again in October and November. Uh, you can take Christmas break. Um, come back again in January. I won't ask for a show of hands for how many of you have uh, gone through your, your twice already, and if you're behind, go ahead and catch up. Um, just nothing like guilt and legalism that, uh, that, go, uh, so that we have in this. But I do think that you'll find a, uh, a blessing uh, in that challenge, and you will find yourself seeing things that you had not seen before, uh, perhaps prompted by some of the messages, perhaps simply the Holy Spirit preparing you and then opening your eyes to, to see or to ask questions. Uh, this morning we come to Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. The sun will come out right now, though, a series. The, the, the outside is uh, probably appropriate because it's, Paul's been painting quite a, a dark picture and continues in one sense here uh, but by the time we get through chapter 3, uh, the sun will come out. You will see uh, the hope of the gospel being borne out. Let's go to our God in prayer before we come to the word. Holy God, we do thank you for this word. We thank you that you who have made us and you who know us have anticipated our questions, our curiosity. You have revealed to us what we need to know. You have revealed to us in many respects, what we want to know in response to uh, your grace. And I pray now that as we consider uh, parts of that, that you would open our minds that we might comprehend and our hearts that we would receive. That we might be reminded of how great and glorious and gracious you are and what a privilege it is to be your people, redeemed by the blood of your Son, loved more than we can comprehend. Enable us today to recognize a little bit more the depth of your love for us, that we might know ourselves in light of being your children. We pray this uh, not only for our joy, but for your glory. We pray in Christ. Amen. Romans 3, beginning our reading in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if someone were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Uh, by no means. For then how could ju God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Uh, the word of our God. Clint Eastwood's 1992 film, The Unforgiven, is noted to be the last Western that he uh, acted in or, or directed. As one periodical or publication stated that it was his swan song ending in a sunset, no more would he be engaged in westerns. If you're not familiar with that film, I'll just give a, a brief synopsis because it, it really, I've found, is, is pertinent to, to uh, what we have been seeing here in uh, the Book of Romans so far. Um, Clint Eastwood plays a, an old gunslinger by the name of Will Money who has since retired and lost his appetite for, uh, for gunfighting. He's trying to make it as a pig farmer, although he's not doing particularly well, but he is bent on making an honest living and staying out of trouble and staying away from violence. And then one day a, a, a young man comes uh, to him, uh, Kid Schofield, who tries to entice him to come out of his retirement and go on uh, a posse to find some rogue cowboys who had come into town and shut up a saloon and, uh, and killed some of the people who were working there. A large, large bounty had been placed on bringing them in, dead or alive. And so for the opportunity, this young man wanted to find some adventure. He had known Will Money before, knew of his reputation, and thought that would be a good partner to have with him. And so because of the size of the bounty, because of his failures as a pig farmer, he decides he will go and try to track down these cowboys. Now, moving forward, they find these cowboys and eventually have an altercation with them, and Kid Schofield shoots uh, them down. And then toward the end of the movie, you see a scene where Kid Schofield kind of just crumples down onto his seat. You can see him very pensively thinking, life kind of taken out of him. He's thinking, he's disheartened, and he's trying to justify the fact that he had just taken a gun and taken somebody's life. And as you see him mentally anguished over that, then speaking out loud, he finally expresses this line, considering the people who they had gunned down were, uh, were notorious criminals. Well, I guess they had it coming. Then after a brief pause, Will Money says, we all have it coming. And I think that line beautifully characterizes, even in a sobering way, what the Apostle Paul has been saying. The fact that we all have it coming is testimony that he, in his own experience, no hint of having any religion, any faith, but he just recognized that in every single person there is a brokenness, there is a warpedness, there is something that is not good in every single person. And so in his estimation though some people had received what they had coming and they were shot, uh, shot down. That's not a justification because every one of us has it coming. Now, as we've been looking at the book of Romans so far, particularly as we looked at the last part of Romans 1 and then all of Romans 2, we've seen the Apostle Paul essentially say, we all have it coming. Beginning with the people who are irreligious or people who live uh, functionally, apart from faith, by their instincts, he shows that they have it coming. 
Then he moves on to those who might be in the church, they might not be in the church, but people who are moralists, people who consider themselves good people. He shows how they have it coming. And then last week, as we looked at the last half of chapter 2, Paul turns his attention from those who are unbelievers, or who act and function like unbelievers, to those who may or may not be believers, but live as if the whole essence of life is to be good people. And then he turns onto his own tribe, he turns toward the Jews and their religious rituals that they hold dearly, and which they also gain their sense of comfort and identity. And he says, and even we have it coming. Paul has just annihilated the whole human race, one group at a time, because, as he says later in his non-Clint Eastwood way, there's none righteous, not one. And because there's not one who's righteous, not one, we all have it coming. Now, imagine for a moment that you are someone who's a recipient of this letter. Paul's writing to Roman church, a Roman church that is filled with people from different backgrounds. And every one of the backgrounds that he has spoken of, people are in that church. Some of the people had no religion, came from paganism, and then had heard the gospel of Christ, and then joined with this new uh, expression of faith that was worshiping um, God who had come in the flesh, who had died and then rose again. There were others who had considered themselves good people according to whatever the standards were. And then there were people who were devout Jews who recognized that Jesus Christ embodied all of the prophecies of the one who would come to be the promised Messiah. And they were worshiping as well. And so as Paul's letter is being read to this church, and you were one in that latter category, you were a Jew, you've been faithful your whole life, you have recognized that God has raised up a people whom he would bless in order that they would be a blessing to the nations. You grew up in that. You were faithful in that. You, even though you had failed at times, you had gone through the sacrifice uh, each year, diligently doing what the law required you to do as best as your ability, and then offering the sacrifices when you had failed to do what you were supposed to do. And now you hear all the promises that come in Jesus Christ, and you read this letter, and you have a kick in the gut. After everything you've tried to do, after everything you have done, after the faithfulness that you have pursued, of the worship that you have offered to God, and this Paul says, you're really no better off than anyone else. At least not in yourself. You're going to have a strong reaction. And like a good attorney, the apostle Paul anticipates the reaction that the readers of his letter were going to have. He anticipates questions that they are likely to ask. And then he provides answers. And the primary question that he begins with in this chapter is, is there no advantage? Is there no advantage to having been a Jew, to having been part of the covenant household, to having been raised in learning meditating and memorizing God's words that he's given to us, to committing yourself to live according to God's standards, to giving yourself to whatever it is that God has said that we are to do in response to our own failures to live up to that. There's no advantage whatsoever because it doesn't seem that way by the time you get done with chapter 2. And so Paul, anticipating this question, first thing he asks, then what advantage has the Jew of, or what value is circumcision, which was the God-given sign of the covenant that marked the household of God's people 
that was done in faithfulness to God in the first place. For us, we would say baptism. Is there no benefit in, in baptism? Which, in, in being admitted into the membership in the church? I mean, if there's no benefit, then why do we try so hard? If there's no benefit to growing up in a godly home, why do we strive so hard to have and cultivate godly families? This is the question Paul anticipates that no doubt the, the people had, and it's a reasonable question, perhaps more bluntly than any of us would be inclined to ask, but it's an important question. And it drives the next part of what Paul teaches. Paul responds to this rhetorical question by saying, oh yeah, much in every way. In other words, there are, there are many, many blessings for being part of the covenant family. They don't save you, but there are blessings for being part of the covenant family. And then Paul expresses one, and then I'm going to suggest to you that we see another one in the subsequent questions, or at least we are reminded of one. And so while Paul will later go and enumerate and explain a, a number of benefits of being part of the household of faith, here he begins with one that he just says, first of all, you have been entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the first, and as some would say, because the word proto is used there, first meaning maybe most important. It may just be that it's foundational to all of the other blessings that come. But you have been entrusted with the, the words of God. As one New Testament scholar had said that the, the, the word that oracle, as it's translated there, doesn't mean just the commandments or the promises, but the whole of the Old Testament, which was what Paul at this point was, uh, was referring to, because that's what contains those promises and those commandments. And that was what was committed to Israel's care. The word of God was entrusted to God's people. The word of God which explains and reveals what God's nature is like. And what explains to us why we are the way that we are. And the way that God has worked throughout all of history is chronicled in his word. His plan to redeem a people and to renew the entire world is recorded in this word. And the wisdom of God for the way that life is supposed to work, the way that life works best because it's the way that he designed it, is in this word. And he has entrusted it to his people, first to Israel, and then, including what was given to Israel, now the new covenant, as it's recorded, including this letter, to his people, the new Israel, the, the church. His word has been given to us, and it is an absolute treasure trove. I mean, if you don't think that there's any advantage of being given this word, think about it this way. Imagine there is a, a general who somehow comes across the battle plan of their opponent and knows exactly where their troops are and anticipates the troop movements, knows exactly what the other troops have and in terms of weaponry and of personnel. That kind of information would be quite helpful, I would assume. I'm not in the military. I did take one military science class. The only thing I remember is rappelling off the side of a building. But... Um, and I haven't felt the need to do it again. But anyway, that's a, 
that, that kind of God's plan is here. It is the instruction book, something you get that is more complex than what you would imagine. Sometimes you have to go and, and you look to see what it is. It is here. And it reveals to us the glory of God, the, the beauty of God. This is an absolute treasure trove, and it has been entrusted to his people. And the word entrusted is an important word in here. It's one that's easily overlooked, but it is a vitally important word for us to understand what Paul is saying here. Entrusted, we're entrusted with a, a treasure. To be entrusted means to be, to be given something. And so to have that word, that treasure given to us means that we don't have to be going throughout the world searching the libraries from antiquity in order to find some word from God. We don't need to be a people who go off to some mountaintop someplace and then pray and fast and plead with God that he might speak some word to us. He has already spoken And he has chosen to record that which he has spoken. And he continues to speak, even today, by his Holy Spirit and the word that he has recorded and that he has entrusted to his people. The word entrusted reminds us that it's a trust. It's a word used in financial planning. It is a commodity. It is something that is to be cared for, to be handled. And when something is entrusted, it is usually expected that those who are entrusted with the gift will use what has been entrusted to them in the way that the one who had given it to them had intended in the first place. God says through Paul, you have been entrusted with my word which means that we have been given this great, valuable, beneficial gift that has a purpose that God has revealed even in his word. And that purpose is to shape us and to draw the world to himself. I think if we're honest, many of us, at least at times, and maybe often, we underestimate the value of that which has been entrusted to us. We underappreciate the power that it has to do what God says that it will do to transform us, to make us like himself. We may recognize that it has a value, and we put it someplace where it can be stored up, kept safe, and preserved. God's plan was that it would be at work in us as well as through us so that we don't simply become custodians of the word, but that we become living embodiment of the word that he has given to us. It is a word that needs to be preached, but more than being preached, it needs to be lived. In a culture that is attacking it at times and people who are undermining it saying, well, that's what it says, but that doesn't really mean what you think that it says, and then give you suggestions that really are flat out just absurd. It is important that we preserve the word, but more than preserving, it is to be proclaimed and it is to be lived out by his people. The word, this gift, is more for formation than for information. 
And we need to recognize that the fact that it's entrusted to us and that we value it doesn't exempt us from the purpose that God intended for its use. The first church that I served had a horrible history. Some of the elders weren't Christians. By the time I got there, there were only 25 people and only two of families of working age. God did a a great work and and been blessed. And a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down uh, for lunch with one of the elders there. Um, But it brought back to mind, I... During that time, I also became the chairman of church planting for the presbytery there. And I remember standing up before the presbytery at one time, talking about the time of churches that we need to plant. Churches that are rooted on the word, that believe the word, and who are knowledgeable and therefore embody the word. And then I used the church that I was pastoring at the time as an example of a church not to plant. Because the attitude of the people when they first started that church was, we believe the Bible, we believe every word of it, even that it's genuine leather. I mean, that was the extent of their knowledge of it. They, they, they couldn't distinguish. They didn't know the word. They had learned some things, but it hadn't taken root within them. And as I was thinking about this gift that's been given to us as, uh, as I've been preparing this week, I was reminded of a story I heard years ago. I can't remember where, uh, where I heard it first, so it's mine now. Um, but it's of, uh, of a, a man who had spent his life, he had built a business, and then was going to go away on a long journey with his wife. He didn't know how long he was going to be gone, so he had prepared uh, a handful of people who had worked with him for a while, a dozen or, or so, um, to, and entrusted with them the continual running of the business. He wrote out some instructions, he wrote out some of his own values so that these things would continue to be embedded in the in the company that he had founded because he had full intention of of coming back and resuming his oversight of this company. And even while he was away, he would periodically send them some letters letting them know what was going on, letting them know some thoughts that he had and encouragement uh, for them, direction that he thought that they should take uh, as they were running the ship. After a long period of time, he came back unexpectedly and walked into his office, and everything was a shambles. So he went and he found those who had been entrusted with running his company. And he asked, what's going on here? And they said, well, what do you mean? This place is a mess. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And they said, well, we assume so. He said, well, I left you very specific instructions. I mean, I even sent you some letters. Didn't you get my letters? And they said, oh, yeah. They were great. I mean, we loved it. We appreciated the fact that you thought of us and that you you sent us these letters. In fact, you had some really, really marvelous things to say. And so a few of us decided we would get together each week and we would read them to one another. And then we began studying them. Some of the people that were more committed even began to memorize some of the better phrases that you offered. And he said, well, 
pulling his hair out. Well, what did you do with what I had given to you? Do? We didn't do anything. We saved them over here because we knew they were important. And so they had no impacts. And that story is an indictment on the evangelical church as we have been entrusted with the word of God. And we spend our time reading the same few lines over and over again rather than recognizing that it is a gift that shows us and gives to us the mind of God that is able to renew our own minds and therefore direct our lives. And ultimately, it leads us to God himself. It is an incredible gift. It is an incredible benefit. It is an incredible blessing that God has entrusted to us. And so when the question is arisen, is arisen, isn't there any benefit from being part of the covenant household of God, marked by the sign of the covenant that you have established, which is the essence of the question that Paul poses at the top of this chapter? Paul says, absolutely, foundationally, you have been entrusted with the treasure of God's word. The question is, what are we doing with that blessing, with that privilege? with that advantage that is ours. Paul goes on, and he recognizes that his statements may beg some other questions. And we see then a a series of questions that really kind of three categories, or one and two A and B, that that are related that are natural responses to what Paul has said so far, particularly as it's a, a challenge to those who have grown up in the household of faith. And while he doesn't specifically cite a, a, a second advantage, as I look at the responses that Paul gives to these questions, I believe that we see implied here a second advantage for the Jews who are now believers and the believers who are now heirs to Abraham, which is all who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's us. And if the first advantage was we've been entrusted with the word of God, the second advantage we have is that we have the promise of the faithfulness of our God. Our God is faithful. While the scriptures teach that the gods of the nations are idols, it's made by hands, they are really nothing meaning they are nothing but the imagination of human being. They are not gods in themselves. Our God is not only the living and true God, but our God is a faithful God, and that is to our advantage. And we see that in the questions that are asked. Paul goes on in, in chat, verse 2, uh, or excuse me, in verse 3, what if some are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And what he's saying is, okay, God has raised up this community in order to relate to him, to glorify him, to serve him. But what if some within that community either are not believers or they act or function as if they are not believers? Does that nullify? Does that make the covenant null and void? Does that forfeit the 
the expectation that God would be faithful to what he has promised. Or even it's possible to interpret that question, does that override God's faithfulness? Is it, does it indicate in some way there was a flaw in God's plan? Because he was going to use these people, and some of them are not faithful. Now, I love the way Paul responds. I know it's his own question, but he's thinking, and probably he has heard this, because we see later on that he's actually speaking things that have been asked before or, uh, and mentioning things that they have been accused of. And Paul says kind of this. So the question being, if some are unfaithful, does that nullify, does that void the, the covenant? And Paul says, some. Try all. Nobody. And, and that's, that's what he says. Does their faithfulness nullify the covenant foolishness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, Paul is saying, you know, first of all, you're thinking, anybody who's asking this question is thinking way too low. It's not just some of us at times uh, act as if we are unfaithful and we act like we're unbelievers, every one of us at some time or another. The reality is in any church it may be because some are unbelievers, but every one of us functionally unbelieves at times. And if we don't believe that, well, then the question would be, then why do you struggle with anxiety? Why do you struggle with fear? Why do you worry about anything at any time? Those are just some of the examples that we are, though believers, though being part of the covenant, we function as if we are not believing the promises of God or the ability of God to be faithful to the covenant that he's had. Every one of us, at some point or another, we fail. And we understand that and, and we know that. But the question is really a good one, one that we may not dare ask, but then does that nullify the covenant? Paul says, in no way. And then he goes on, in fact, against our failure, we see the glory of God shining even brighter. See, God has a long history of working with failures throughout all of the Old Testament. It's interesting here that the quote that he has from the Old Testament comes from David. After David had failed and stumbled and plunged himself into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. This is David's response. So anybody who had grown up and been taught the scriptures might have recognized that, that just by quoting without even citing, he is bringing to mind one of the great failures through whom God was glorified in all history. And we need to remind ourselves that God works through failures on this earth. Now, as one pastor friend of mine said, it's because really that's all he's got down here. But it is really to be a great comfort to us. That God has not failed. That when we fail and we acknowledge our failure and we recognize our only hope is the mercy of God, it is God's mercy, it is God's grace, it is God's plan that is now at work despite ourselves that that which we either meant for evil or that which we didn't care about or that was our, our flaw, flaw, failure. Now God's grace reigns all the more clear. Because we see that God is loving, that he is merciful, that he is forgiving, and that he is just. God is glorified by people who recognize their weakness, their need, their failure, and therefore need to trust in him. God has a long history of taking things that we have made ugly and turning them to the good and bringing, as the scripture says, beauty out of ashes. Some of you today need to hear that. 
because maybe there are things going on in your life or around your life that are unbecoming that you'd rather not anybody know about. And I can't tell you that those things are okay, but I can tell you that doesn't nullify God's faithfulness to his covenant. And you have reason for hope because he takes things and works his plan out despite our failures. But then Paul recognized that answer begs yet another question. And we see that in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show that righteousness of God, to show, uh, show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul says, I'm speaking like human. This is the way you know, people think. It's not a godly way of thinking. And then later on, we see um, verse 7. And if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned to sinner? Why am I being called? Why? And it goes on. And why not do evil that good may come? If our sin, if our failure, if our waywardness somehow results in the glory of God, then they're asking this question. Then shouldn't we just plunge ourselves to do more to the glory of God? Just sin all the more to the glory of God? And is God unfaithful? Is he unjust to call our sin sin if it results in his glory? And Paul points out that this is flawed thinking. It's a flawed logic. You see, we tend to have this mindset that there are only two options when we or someone sins. Let the failure off or let the failure have it. And Paul is saying here that that's, those are not the only two options. That there is another way. There is a better way. And that is on the cross. There is only one place that we can look to see that God does not excuse sin, though he mercifully trumps it and turns what is intended to be evil or that which is evil into something resulting in good or something that is beautiful. Where we most clearly see this is the cross and Jesus is upon it. Because on the cross, we are reminded that God does not deal lightly with sin. He pours out an incomprehensible wrath for the sins of his people. But he's poured them out on his son who has volunteered for the mission. And Jesus received the wrath so that we may receive mercy and grace. But justice is done. God doesn't compromise who he is. He doesn't look lightly upon that. We see in the devastating destruction of his own son, what God thinks of our sin. But we are set free. To sin more? No. Paul says, not in this lifetime, that we have loose translation here. Reminded what Augustine said. Augustine once said, you will become what you love. And when we see God and the grace and mercy, his grace and mercy grips our hearts, then we love God and we become more like him. And as Peter says, as we, when grace and mercy grip our hearts, we die to sin so that we can live to righteousness. And where is it that we most clearly see the cross? In the word that's entrusted to us. 
There we see everything that leads up to it, all the promises associated, and we are reminded that the benefits of it are ours by simply believing and repenting. Where can we go to experience the benefits of this cross? We come to this table.